It is an exciting day. He is risen. Yeah, some of you have been around for a while. The early church, it was, it's exciting to look at your handout. If you're watching with us virtually, and it's just great for us to have so many of us together here in the house to celebrate the resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ. What we're going to talk about today is that it's the dawning of a new day. And, I, and what I want to do is, in a very real sense, hopefully take us back to that very first resurrection Sunday morning, first day of the week, and for us to get a sense, and, and, and for those of you that are here all the time and those of you that know me, look closely at your handout. I'm not going over all of that today, but, but what I'm going to do is kind of let the Lord lead me. I really want to focus on Mary Magdalene for a number of reasons. You'll see as we walk through this. The rest of it, I hope you can go home and, and do on your own. It's a, it's a great, just reading the Gospels is encouraging to us as believers. But I want to make sure we take away from this day as we celebrate, and I realize we call it Easter, and the reality is what we're celebrating as Christians, Christ's followers, is Passover is fulfilled. Easter was a Teutonic saying, and they took, adopted it for the holiday, and that's fine. We call it Easter. And people are celebrating all over the world the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Well, what we're celebrating is that he is the Passover lamb, his death, his burial, and his resurrection. All of that pictured in the celebration of Passover and then living out the Christ life after that. So it's a thrill for us all to be together on a beautiful, incredible spring day. And whether you're here in the house or you're worshiping again with us virtually, here's what I want us to take away applicably as we walk through thinking about that first resurrection Sunday morning. It says, that day dawned. It was the worst possible day in the history of the human race, particularly for those who were Christ's followers. As they woke up that day, their thought was, it's over. Jesus of Nazareth was not the Messiah after all. He's not who we put our faith in. He's not the deliverer. He's not the fulfillment of prophecy. He's not the son of man. Even though he called himself that, and he said he was, he's not. We're going to see that, that, um, that emotional low. You could not get any lower than those that were closest to Jesus Christ that Sunday morning. No lower. And yet, by that night, Jesus personally appears to them. And they realize he is alive. In that one day, they went from the depths of despair to the heights. And they still had some struggles. And so, again, applicably, what I want us to take away, your day, every day, when it dawns for us as Christians, a new day dawns. And it's a day where God says, I've got something great for you. And that process and the greatness of that day may be really hard. It may be very difficult. It may be painful. It may be emotional in a, in a negative way. But here's what we have to always come back to. Our God is not only with us in the moment. He knew about today before it began. He's already in tomorrow. And the exciting thing for us as Christians is to realize, and, and, and I wake up every day before dawn, and I sit there, Sometimes still in my bed, I'll lay there and read, or sometimes you know, I'm getting up, and whether I'm making coffee or taking medicine or getting ready for the day, I'm always in the dark, and then the sun rises. And it is not an accident that God reminds us in Scripture that way. It's just a picture. That as every day dawns, it's another day that I have declared for you. As we've been looking at in our series in Esther, that it's your time. It's your moment Here's what, I got something great for you today. And it may hurt, and it may be difficult. What God says is I'm always working good, all the time, 
no matter the circumstances may be bleak, as we're going to see that first Sunday morning, they were bleak. So it's important for us as Christians to understand as we look at the resurrection of Jesus Christ, we celebrate all over the world. We are celebrating today as Christians the greatest day in the history of the human race, the day Jesus Christ rose from the dead. It's the day death died. It's the day hope was born eternally for anyone who comes to him by faith. There are a lot of people today that are in worship services, again, all over our world, some not even knowing why, some just doing it because their wife told them they were going to do it, some doing it because mama says we go to church, we're Christians, some doing it just because it's Easter and that's one of the things you do. So what I want for us is to see the passion, the emotion that God wants us to take away from realizing that I have conquered your two greatest enemies. That's what you celebrate at resurrection, that our two greatest enemies were conquered, sin and death. But they have no sting in our lives. They don't own us anymore. We don't have to fear death because we're in Christ. As Paul wrote, Christ in you, the hope of glory. Hank Hanegraaff, the president of the Christian Research Institute, describes the resurrection this way. The resurrection of Jesus Christ is the greatest feat in the annals of human history. It's the very capstone in the arch of Christianity. Without it, all else crumbles. When we fully comprehend the significance of resurrection, our lives will be revolutionized. Without resurrection, there is no hope. Indeed, without resurrection, there would be no Christianity. End quote. And the thing that caught my attention as I read that, and he's got a whole book on resurrection and, and just reading that, that reason I wanted to use that quote. He says, when you understand it, when you fully comprehend the significance of, of the resurrection, your life, lives will be revolutionized. In my own personal walk with Jesus Christ of, of this month, as I told you last week, it will be 51 years since I became a Christian. And I've seen God, but in this last year, as difficult as this last year has been, both culturally, politically, socially, and personally in the lives of, of Mary and I, as difficult a year as it has been, I have seen God come through over and over and over again, sometimes in very dramatic, miraculous ways. I was talking to a sweet lady this week, as I mentioned that last week, about miracles of what's happened in Mary's life, and she called me. I called her just to check on her, and she asked me, do you believe in miracles? And here's what I told her, and I believe this with all my heart. Every morning when I look in the mirror, I'm looking at a miracle. That God took this and turned it into his child. He took me from an enemy, a godless, sinful human being, no interest in God at all, and he changed me into adopting me into his family. I became his son. There's no greater miracle that God ever performs than redeeming a life. That's why Jesus said you must be born again. It's a, you get a brand new life. Paul said, if any man's in Christ, he's a new creation. All things are passed away. All things have become new. We celebrate that today. So just briefly, and then we're going to get into John 20. If you haven't turned there already, you can turn there. John chapter 20, the gospel the significance of the res resurrection, number one. And we're not going to get into all the proofs about the body. Uh, we could do that at another time. If you won't, I'll be glad to do that for you, that he did rise from the dead physically. We're going to assume that and move on. The significance of Jesus' resurrection, number one, it proves that he is God the Son, that he's exactly who he said he was. In Paul's introduction to his great book of Romans, called by Martin Luther, The Constitution of Our Faith, in the introduction to the book of Romans, the Apostle Paul writes these words. Paul, a bondservant of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle, separated to the gospel of God, which he promised before through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. God did. Concerning his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord, who was born of the seed of David according to the flesh and declared to be the son of God with power, according to the spirit of holiness, by the resurrection from the dead. End quote. 
Peter's sermon on the day of Pentecost, the first sermon ever preached to the church. The very first, the day the Holy Spirit fell and the church age began, which we're still in today, and we will be in until Jesus comes back. The Bible calls that last days. The very first sermon ever preached to the church. Peter says these words. This Jesus God has raised up, of which we are all witnesses, therefore being exalted to the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit. He poured out this which you now see and hear. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he, he says himself, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. Therefore, let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. That is unique. That is unique. Proves that he's God, the Son. Secondly, it proves that his work of atonement on the cross, where he says it is finished, his resurrection cemented that as complete. By the way, that's what Passover is a picture of. It goes back into covering all the way back to the Garden of Eden with original sin. God covered Adam and Eve's nakedness. The word covering means atonement. We're covered by the blood of Jesus Christ because his blood atoned for our sins. So his resurrection cemented the fact, not only that he's God, but that his work is complete and that it is sufficient. That it does not have to be done again. No more blood has to be spilled. No more sacrifice. Jesus paid it all. We sang that today. In Romans chapter 4, Paul wrote, but also for us, it shall be imputed to us who believe in him who raised up Jesus our Lord from the dead, who was delivered up because of our offenses, and he was raised because of our justification, or that so that we could be right with God. Salvation born again. It proved that what he did when he said it is finished, that it was finished. If he did not rise from the dead, then we would be devastated like they were when they came to the tomb because he would have been a liar or a lunatic, but he wasn't God. Paul says, but he was Lord God. He proved it by rising from the dead. Remember, Jesus had told them, destroy this body, and what's the rest of the statement? In three days, I I will raise it up. I will come back from the dead. Notice, he said, destroy this body. He didn't rise euphemistically. He didn't rise metaphorically. He didn't rise spiritually. He rose physically. His body walked out of that tomb. As a matter of fact, he exploded through the grave clothes and left them there intact, folded up the headpiece, put it aside, and the clothes were still laying. It looked like the body was still there, and he was out hanging out with people. He rose from the dead. And if he did not, then we're wasting our time. We need to do something else. Meet on Sunday and have a good time, go play golf or do whatever we want to do. But we don't worship Jesus Christ. But he rose from the dead. He cemented the fact that his resurrection from the dead solidified him as the savior of mankind. Abraham, the father of Judaism, died 2,000 years before Jesus Christ was born, his body's still in that tomb where they buried him. I've been there. In 483 B.C., Buddha, about 80 years old, ate a poisonous mushroom and died. He was cremated and buried in India. His ashes are still there. 632 A.D., the prophet Muhammad became ill, developed a high fever, and he died at the age of 62. He laid the foundation for what is now the second largest and fastest growing religion in the world, Islam. Millions of people visit his tomb every day. He's still there. In AD 33, Jesus Christ was crucified. He died and he was buried. And on the third day following his death, he arose from the dead and he was seen by Mary Magdalene, by the other women at the tomb, Peter, two travelers on the road to Emmaus, whose disciples were in the house, He appears to them and over 500 people at one time. What's the difference between Buddhism, Islam, Judaism, and Christianity? It's real simple. Of the four major religions that are on planet Earth, only one of them goes to an empty tomb. 
It's Christianity. Jesus conquered sin and death. And by so doing, said there's only, as Paul wrote, there's only one God and one mediator between God and men. It is the man, Christ Jesus. Not just another great religious leader slash martyr. God in the flesh who gave himself, ransomed us, adopted. Go through the, check out the metaphors in the New Testament. Describe what it means to be a Christian. Adopted, ransomed, paid on and on. All of them communicate one thing. Jesus paid it all. All to him I owe. Not just a religious, another religious leader. Turn to your Bibles to John chapter 20 and look at verse 1. On the first day of the week, and again, if you understand history, that would be Sunday. The Jews worshipped on Saturday, and the first day of the week in their calendar was Sunday, just like our calendar begins, every week begins with a Sunday. On the first day of the week, Sunday, I want you to stop there for a moment. I'm not going to get this meticulous about every verse, but I want you to notice. I want you to pause. Jews, historically, for thousands of years, had worshipped on what day? Saturday. Still do. The Jews that followed Jesus Christ in the early church for year, the first few years was exclusively almost Jewish at Jerusalem and they changed their worship day from what? Saturday to why? Because on the first day of the week Jesus Christ rose from the dead and it changed them. Go back. Even if you reject scripture, which many people do, and say, no, 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 Jesus is not God, he's not the Messiah, I don't believe that's just fairy tales. That's fine. Go back and read history. Why did they turn the Roman Empire upside down, Christianize it? What, happened? what, what changed? Why did the, so many of the early Christians, the Jews, why were they willing to be tortured and slaughtered like their Savior One of them said, crucify me upside down. I'm not worthy to be crucified upright like Jesus. And to to go into the arena and allow animals to eat them and tear them apart because they believed Jesus of Nazareth walked out of that tomb. He was God. It changed them. And I pray with all my heart. It's changed you. Not just that I'm glad Jesus died on the cross and I'm a Christian. I got that box checked. I'm looking forward to going to heaven one day. I got that box checked. No, no. They believed, by the way, Jesus was coming back when? In their lifetime. You ever hear anybody say Jesus is coming back in, in our lifetime? You ever hear anybody say that? I've been hearing it for 51 years. And my lifetime I'm getting shorter and shorter all the time. Now, can he come back today? Can he come back before this sermon is over? He can, and and if he does, somebody else take over. He can come back whenever. But it may may be another thousand years. The point was they, they expected it, and they lived like it. We believe it. Here's my challenge to you as we start to look at this closely. Do we live like it? Do we live every day basking in the glory of the fact my Savior rose from the dead and he is God. And I want people to know that. And if it costs me my life, then it costs me my life. What did Esther say? If I perish, I perish. So let's look quickly at the devastation of that day. Number one on your handout. Look at verse 10 for the disciples. We're going to focus on Mary Magdalene. Let's hit verse 10 right quick. Verse 10, for the disciples, the disciples went away again to their own homes. It's the darkest day in their lives. They didn't get together and have a celebration and say, woo, Jesus, just like he said, he died, they buried him, he rose again, let's celebrate, let's go down to the church and hang out and have a good time. What does it say? One simple little verse. They went home. Not just, they didn't go to somebody's, later on they're together that night. But now they, they just simply go to their own homes. In other words, they simply reverted back to what they did before. I got to go back and be a fisherman. Or I'm going to go back to whatever, whatever I was. 
because it's over. Darkest day of their lives, Friday to Sunday morning. Jesus is dead. He kept telling them, but they didn't hear him. They're disillusioned. They're defeated. They're dreading the future because they see what the Jews and the Romans did to Jesus. And they're terrified. They're going to do it to us. Now, go back to verse 1, and let's look and focus in on Mary Magdalene. Verse 1, again, the devastation of that day. On the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb early, like sunrise, while it was still dark, and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. And she ran and came to Simon Peter and to the other disciple whom Jesus loved, that's John, and said to them, they've taken away the Lord out of the tomb. We do not know where they have laid him. If you read the other gospel accounts, Mary wasn't alone. She came with Salome and other women came with her to the tomb. They came not, notice what she said to Peter and John. What did Mary Magdalene say to Peter and John? She ran to find them and tell them what? Jesus is risen from the dead. We're excited. Is that what she did? What did she do? She ran to them to say what? Somebody has taken Jesus' body. They came to the tomb to give him a proper anointing because they hurriedly had buried him. They came to the tomb, the women did, to anoint his body with the spices to give him a proper anointing for burial according to Jewish customs, not to see the resurrected Son of God. They came to bury their friend and the guy they had followed, their leader. They came to the tomb to mourn, just like you and I would when a loved one passes away. They didn't come to celebrate a resurrection. They see the empty tomb. The women do. Their number one concern in heading to the tomb was how are we going to get the big stone away from that they'd rolled in front of the crypt? How are we going to get the stone moved so we can get into the body? She runs to find Peter and John. Mary stays at the tomb. Drop down to verse 11. But Mary stood outside by the tomb weeping, and as she wept, she stooped down and looked into the tomb. She saw two angels in white sitting, one at the head and the other at the feet, where the body of Jesus had lain. And they said to, the, said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, Because they've taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they've laid him. And when she had said this, she turned around and saw Jesus. We're going to come back to that. So verse 11, Mary just stays at the tomb while the other women run off to go. Uh, and they, they talk more about them later. She's weeping. The word weeping in Greek means she's absolutely devastated and overwrought with grief. Because you have to understand the relationship. It's why I love being a Christian because it's so personal. How much about me does God know? You think your wife knows you, right? You've been married 48 years like I have. Your wife knows you. But she doesn't know me like Jesus does. She doesn't know every single detail and thought. I'm glad she doesn't know that every thought that I have before I have them. But Jesus does. And he intimately loves me, cares for me. Mary Magdalene adored Jesus of Nazareth. He had cast seven demons out of her. Think about that. She was literally owned by Satan. Seven demons living in her. And Jesus set her free from that. Gave her life. She absolutely adored him and would have followed him anywhere. And she thinks he's dead. It's over. All she knows to do. And you have been there, and I've been there, and I've seen it personally so many times over the years doing funerals. Sometimes people, they don't know what to do. They just stand there and cry. And this is not just crying. She is racked with pain and grief, and it's just pouring out of her. Jesus is gone. Jesus is gone. What are we going to do? How are we going to go on? He's not here. She stays there. 
weeping. The irony is he should have been weeping tears of joy because the tomb was empty. But she's not there. His resurrection means salvation for all of them, but they don't know. So verse 12 and 13, she sees two angels. By the way, two in the Jewish culture, in the mind, and in Scripture, the Hebrew Scriptures, two was always a sign of a witness of truth. Two or more witnesses were called to make solidify something as true. And she sees two men, they're angels sitting, one at the head, one at the feet of Jesus. It's very much a picture here, Scripture. Number one, that is true. What he said was the truth. But number two, it's so beautiful. If you study and you go back and you look in the tabernacle, the temple, and the Ark of the Covenant, and the Holy of Holies, the mercy, the lid of the Ark of the Covenant is called the mercy seat. Paul would later write to the church at Corinth, Christ is our mercy seat. That's where the blood was sprinkled on the Day of Atonement to pay for the sins of the people by the high priest. Well, on, on the, the lid of the Ark of the Covenant, on each end of it, were carved two cherubim, two angels, one at each end. And as she looked into the tomb where the mercy seat had laid, one on each end, there was an angel. That's not an accidental picture. It's God simply saying, Passover is fulfilled. Passover is fulfilled. Jesus is your mercy seat, and his blood has been spilled and he's risen from the dead, glory, hallelujah. That's what they should have been saying. They weren't there yet. Day of atonement. Verse 13. He said to her, why are you weeping? She said, they've taken away my Lord. That's that personal anguish. My Lord. So I was studying this and thinking about trying to put myself in the shoes of Mary I think about things like how personal we talk about as Christians. We want to share Jesus with someone so they can have a personal relationship with God, that it's not religion. It's like he's, as we talked about earlier, intimately involved with you, knows you, cares about you. And she says, they've taken away my Lord, my Jesus, my master. And I thought about Psalm 23. The Lord is my shepherd, not our shepherd, even though he is, but he's my shepherd. It's personal. He leads me beside still waters. He's going to take care of me. He's going to protect me. Galatians chapter 2, Paul wrote, Christ loved me and gave himself for me. She's emotional, distraught. And the angels say, why are you weeping? You should be celebrating. That's what's implied. Martin Luther great reformer one time was agonizing over something and just kind of in a very depressed state and again your wife knows you something had gone wrong and he was terribly distressed it went on for days so finally the third day his wife comes down the stairs and she's dressed in mourning clothes all in black and in mourning and Martin Luther says to her well who died and wives being smart like they are, his wife said to him, apparently God did. Because you sure don't seem to be trusting him. The righteous live by faith. It's the theme of the entire Bible. We trust our God. Why? Because we're stupid, illiterate, ignorant, and we need help? Like the world thinks? Is that why we trust God? No, we trust him because he has proven himself to be what? Trustworthy. You place your faith in something that's real. Jesus rose from the dead. I can get behind that. Because my God conquered sin and death for me. You, it should be so personal for you. If you ever think, I, don't, I need to pray, but I don't know what to pray about, just start thanking God for saving you. Thanking God for being so good to you. Thanking God for allowing you to have another dawning of a day to serve him. The privilege. Now, look at verse 14. She said this, she turned around, she saw Jesus standing there. She did not know it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, woman, notice, please notice. He addresses her first and says what? Not Mary, woman. Why 
are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? She, supposing him to be the gardener, said to him, Sir, if you've carried him away, tell me where you have laid him, and I will take him away. Jesus asked her two questions. Not on a real personal, intimate level yet. Woman, why are you weeping? Just like the angels. Woman, why are you weeping? What are you seeking? You've come to the tomb of Jesus of Nazareth. He told you he was going to die, be buried, and rise from the dead. Do you not believe him? In other words, where is your faith? The Bible in Proverbs says, God says, I love those who love me. And those who seek me diligently will find me. Mary's not perfect. You know why I love this story? Isn't Mary exactly like we would have been? I love Jesus, but it ain't working for me now. And yet, what does Jesus say? You got to trust me. I know it's hard. I know this day is devastating. You got to trust me. Verses 3 through 9, and we're not going to read all of those. Verses 3 through 9, talking about Peter and John. They run to the tomb. They look in and they see the linen cloths lying there, still in their folds. Again, Jesus has simply exploded through them. The head cloth is folded by itself. Verse 8, I want you to notice verse 8. The other disciple, John, came to the tomb first. He went in also and he saw and believed. That word believe there means he perceived it with intelligent comprehension. In other words, is John completely there yet? Probably not. But he's asking himself, did he really rise from the dead? I'm beginning to believe maybe he did. Verse 9, as yet they, Peter and John, did not know the scripture that he must rise again from the dead. I love this because, again, it's so much like people. Do you not think that Jesus had ever taught them the scripture, by the way, is the Old Testament, the Jewish Hebrew scriptures. Do you think Jesus had ever taught them about the scriptures that, about resurrection and that this is me? Do you think Jesus had ever gone over that with them? If you think he had, raise your hand. If your hand's not up, you're wrong. Of course he did. As a matter of fact, what did he say? Uh, As Jonah was in the belly of the great fish, three three days, three nights, I will what? Same thing. As, as the serpent was lifted up on the pole in the book of Numbers, I will draw, I will be lifted up. I will draw all men unto myself. The Emmaus disciples in Luke 24, this, after this resurrection, he spends all day with them and takes them through the Old Testament scriptures and shows them every single reference to the Messiah in the Old Testament. And says, oh, by the way, this is me, this is me, this is me. Uh, one episode in the Gospels, he goes into the synagogue He reads as a visiting rabbi. He reads Isaiah 61. He lays it down and says what? Today this is fulfilled in your hearing. I'm getting goosebumps thinking about it. God comes in and says, you you mind if I read something? Well, go ahead, Jesus. We're busy, but go ahead. He's a visit. He reads. And then says, by the way, this is talking about me. If you were Jewish, you either were like, whoa, he's God, or we got to get rid of him. This is exactly what happened. Peter and John knew. Please see this. It's so important. They, Jesus himself had taught them the scriptures, and yet they what? They didn't believe. It makes those of us who teach the scriptures sometimes think, you were doing a bad job. Well, apparently Jesus didn't do a real good job either. See, it's not our job to make you believe it. It's our job to do what? Preach the truth. Teach the truth. You've got to decide, am I going to apply it? Am I going to follow it? Am I going to surrender to it? Just like I do. Here's Peter and John. Jesus had three close friends. An inner circle that saw him at the transfiguration. Saw, was with him in the Garden of Gethsemane. Three. Peter and John were two of them. James was the other. If there was anybody on the planet that should have believed Jesus Totally, who would it have been? It would have been Peter and John. But they don't get it either. Not yet. But it says, verse 9, later they're going to get it from the scriptures. 
But I also love that later that night, what does Jesus do? That evening when they're all gathered together, terrified of the Jews, thinking they're locked behind bolted doors, Jesus just appears in the room. Apparently he walked through the doors. I like that glorified body, that's good. He just shows up in the room to reassure them. He says, here, look at my arms, look at my hands, look at my side. It's me. Go ahead and touch if you need to. It's me. It's my body. Different, but it's me. I have risen from the dead. And then in the very next chapter, we're not going to study it today, but in John 21, I challenge you to read it this week. In John 21, Jesus personally appears to Peter and restores him by asking him three times, do you love me, do you love me, do you love me? Because Peter denied him how many times? What Jesus said, I know, I know you're hurting. I know you're down. I know you think you let me down, and you did. But I'm here to tell you, I died for you. I forgive you. I restore you. Look, if you ever, and I know you've been, I know I've been there, you've probably been there. If you ever think I'm not worthy, guess what? You're right. Isn't that the beauty of Christianity? That God says to you, you're unworthy, but I'll make you worthy. I will give you eternal life. I will adopt you into my family. I will set you free. And then I'm going to give you a commission. Go out and tell people about me. That's exactly what he's going to do for Peter and John and Mary Magdalene. No, the other thing that's beautiful about this, and notice the very first people that Jesus spoke to and saw him alive were women. That's so important in understanding culturally. How did Jews view women? As property. The rabbis had a saying, I'm going to paraphrase, let the word of the law be burned before it's entrusted to a woman. But Jesus appeared to them first. And Paul would later later write that the church of Jesus Christ is neither male nor female. We're equal. We have, we're all believer priests. Different roles? Yes. But brothers and sisters in Christ, same family, one father, one Lord. So quickly, number two on your handout. What did this mean? Pre-resurrection. As they come to the tomb early that morning, as we saw, they're devastated. So what does this mean? For the disciples, they have no purpose now going forward. What are we going to suffer for? What are we going to die for? Jesus is not here. I'm not dying for that. It's not true. What's life all about? We don't have a purpose anymore. We thought we had it. Jesus was the Messiah. We were set, but apparently not. We don't have the protection anymore. Jesus is gone. Who's our leader? Who's our savior? Who's going to protect us from Rome? Who's going to protect us from the Jews? Same thing that happened to Jesus is going to happen to us if we don't shut up. I'm going back to my house. I don't know what you guys are doing. I'm going home. And we don't have any paradise to look forward to. We don't have a future with hope anymore. We did with Jesus. We don't have that peace that he promised us. We've lost all of that. And for the church, going forward, apparently there's no savior, no salvation, no security, no hope. Because Jesus is dead. Now, verse 3 on your handout. The victory of Jesus' death. Not the devastation, but the victory of it. Post-resurrection. After he rose from the dead. Very personal for Mary Magdalene. Look at verse 16 again. 16. Jesus said to her, this is after she has said to Jesus, thinking he was a gardener, where is he so I can go get him? Jesus says to her, this time it's not woman, it's Mary. Calls her name. She turned to him and said, Rabboni, which is to say, teacher. The first person, I can't wait to get to heaven and talk to Mary Magdalene. And say, but what was that like? The first person that Jesus spoke to after he rose from the dead was Mary Magdalene, the woman that nobody wanted anything to do to have been possessed by seven demons. 
Jesus had set her free. She's devastated. Please get this picture. Absolutely devastated. And Jesus says to her, Mary, personal, intimate, calls her by name. He didn't say it to Peter, not yet. Didn't say it to John, not yet. Not even his own mother, not yet. To Mary Magdalene, I want you to know I love you, Mary. And I am here. Calls her by name. I love the verse in Revelation 3, and we quote it all the time. Used to use it a lot in witnessing. It's really talking about personal, intimate fellowship between a believer and Jesus. When Jesus says, behold, I stand at the door and knock. If any man will open the door, I will come into him and have fellowship with him. Jesus is knocking at the door of your heart all the time. Are you hurting, Randy? Let me in. Do you need something? Let me in. I'm here. I'm not going anywhere. What did Jesus say in the Great Commission? I want you to go into all the world, tell all the nations about me, and I'm going to be with you always until the end of the earth. So did he stop being with us after he ascended? He said he had promised, I'm going to send the Holy Spirit to be with you and in you. That's why it's the church age. He's with us all the time, knocking. Are you going to let me in? Are you going to let me be part of your life? I'm here. Now, I love verse 16. Verse 16. Mary recognizes Jesus. Her day of devastation just became what? A new day of dawning. It's it's Jesus. From the depths of emotional turmoil to the ecstasy, Jesus is here. He's talking to me. John 10, Jesus said, the sheep hear his voice, and he calls his own sheep to name, and he leads them out. And he brings out his own sheep, he goes before them, and the sheep follow him, for they know his voice. Jesus said, I am the good shepherd, and the good shepherd gives his life for the sheep. Gives his life for the sheep. It's a new day. And then verse 19, if you'll drop down to there. For the disciples, same day at evening being the first day of the week when the doors were shut, where the disciples were assembled for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and he stood in their midst and he said to them, peace be with you. He said this, he showed them his hands and his side and the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. Jesus said to them again, peace to you. As the Father has sent me, I send you. Same day. Did he, he goes to them and he appears to them and he says to them twice, same thing he had said to them in the upper room discourse, peace. In the upper room discourse, John 14, 27, he said, my peace I give to you. Not as the world gives, I give to you. And he shows up. And remember now, they're hiding behind the doors. They're terrified. They think they're going to come kill us. And Jesus appears to them and says, peace, relax. I got this. I'm here for you. Now, please don't miss this. It's really important. He says, as the Father sent me, I'm sending you. Wait a minute. Let's look back here for a second, Jesus. The Father sent you. You've been tortured to death, beaten beyond recognition, crucified. And now you're sending us out to do what? Probably the same thing. Probably the same thing. And it's going to, you're going to be, remember when they were talking about being committed to Jesus, what did Jesus say? You want to follow me? Okay, here's what you got to do. You got to deny yourself, take up your cross, and then come follow me. Pick up your cross. If you lived under the Roman Empire, pick up your cross meant what? Uh, we're headed to your crucifixion. Let's go, boys. And the Bible, the very next verse there in John 6 says, many of them followed no more. In other words, he was culling out the sheep and the goats. Are you serious about this? Or you just think it's cool to follow a miracle worker? I am God. You want to follow me? Come on. But it's not going to be easy. And we need to understand that. It's a dawning of a new day. But sometimes it's hard. And if you choose to live godly in Christ Jesus, what did Paul tell Timothy? 
You could expect to be persecuted. They, they got it eventually. Read the book of Acts. They got it. All that Paul went through, they got it. Despite their denials, they're in mourning, they're weeping. And despite their denials, their forsaking of Jesus, their unbelief in Jesus, Jesus comes to them, stands with them, and calms their fears and says, I'm here. I got this. I'm here for you. Shows them his proof in verse 20. And here's the point. Here's what he's saying. Jesus is alive. Jesus is here. Jesus is God. And he's going to send him out on a commission. Now what does it mean for us? And then we're done. It's power for us. The Holy Spirit was sent by Jesus to empower the church. And here's what he did when he, when he rose from the dead. He defeated, it's there on your handout, death, sin, and Satan. Jesus has said, this is my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. It will fight against it. But the church wins because Jesus rose from the dead. And Satan is a defeated enemy, still at work, and will be, till Jesus comes back. But he is defeated because Jesus rose from the dead. The bottom of your outline, notice 1 Corinthians 15, that great passage. It says, I deliver to you, first of all, that which I also received. The most important thing I received, Paul says. Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. That would be the Old Testament he was buried. He rose again the third day according to the scriptures. Notice the repeated emphasis of the Old Testament. He was seen by Cephas, that's Peter, then by the twelve. And if Christ is not risen, drops down to verse 14, our preaching is empty, our faith is empty. If he didn't rise from the dead, we are wasting our time and we're ignorant. Our faith is futile. You're still in your sins. And those who have fallen asleep or passed away in Christ Jesus have perished. If in this life only we have hope in Christ, we're of all men most to be pitied. Verse 20, maybe one of the coolest verses in the whole Bible. But now Christ is risen from the dead. It's a fact. And he's become the first fruits, which is, by the way, a festival that's part of Passover called First Fruits. Jesus has become the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. In other words, he rose from the dead, and when believers die, We've been raised to new life in Christ on earth. When we die, we were raised to new life with him forever in paradise. Every day is the dawning of a new day. Every day the dawning of a new day. I hope you celebrate that. Wherever you find yourself, I'm going to share a true story with you, and then we're done. Many of you remember the story not many, all of you remember the story that happened in 1912. There was a Scottish evangelist named John Harper in 1912. He was on a ship with his six-year-old daughter sailing to the United States to go to Chicago and be the new pastor of the Moody Church in Chicago. It's a big deal, 1912. He was on a ship sailing to the States to become the pastor of Moody Church. The name of the ship was the Titanic. We all know what happened to the Titanic. And so when they hit the iceberg and they realized they were all going to go down, this pastor gets his six-year-old into the lifeboat and gives his life preserver to someone else, and then he starts going around preaching the gospel to every single person he could before he died. So he's in the water. And he's screaming as they're all jumping up. He said, put the women and the children and the unsaved in the lifeboats. And then he's in the water, in that icy water. He's floating around, holding on to flotsam, wreckage. And he floats up to this guy and says, are you saved? And the guy said, no. And he said, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall be saved. And the wave carries him away. A few minutes later, the wave brings him back, and he asks the guy again, are you saved yet? The man said, no. He says, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, you will be saved. And he floats away, 
and he drowns. Even as he was dying, what was he thinking of? Sharing the gospel with someone else. Four years later, that guy shows up at the church. He survived, and he shows up, and he says, I have to share my testimony with you, that this man shared the gospel with me, and as he died, I watched him die, and I gave my life to Jesus Christ. So in his death, what did he do? He shared the gospel. You never, every day dawns. It's a new day. And I've challenged you with this before, and I'll do it again. You ask God every day when you wake up, Lord, let me share the gospel with somebody today. You don't have to preach to them. Just love them. Let them know how much Jesus loved them. That's what the resurrection is about. He died, he was buried, and he rose again so that people could have a new day and be excited about that day every day. Would you bow your heads, please? Father, we thank you for the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Not just the historical significance of it, but the individual personal significance of it. What he said to Mary Magdalene, he says to me, he says, Randy, I know you're hurting, I'm right here. I'm right here. I pray each of us individually, both whether you're watching virtually or here in the room, as we close out our time together, could just think about Jesus. Resurrected from the dead, just standing there beside you all the time saying, I'm here, what are we going to do today? Who are we going to tell about me today? Don't have to be a great preacher. You just got to love Jesus. Be excited about him. That every day is a resurrection day. Lord, we thank you for Jesus. I thank you for the folks at Christ Church. I know some are really hurting. We have families that are looking at death, devastation. But Jesus is right there. He is. Oh, we're wasting our time. But now Christ is risen from the dead. Thank you, Father. We commit not just this day, but every day to be a new dawning for you. In Jesus' name, amen. Please stand while we close out our time together.